Grace and peace to you all. We've spent the last couple of weeks majoring in the minor prophet of Joel. We've called the minor prophet not because he is any less important than any of the other prophets, but because his book is short. They have major books, they're long, and minor books are short. It has nothing to do with the content. In Joel chapter 1, we learned that there was a disaster which hit the land of Judah and the remains of Israel. And there were four separate swarms of locusts that came through, which never happens. (laughs) You might have one locust swarm, possibly you'd have two. And if you had two, that would be a disaster, like a once every 500 year flood. It's a horrific, horrific event. But the people in Judah hadn't just had two, they didn't have three, they had four separate swarms of locusts. By the time those locusts were through, not only were there no crops, there were no seeds, and some people even had their doors eaten off. That'd be an unpleasant way to wake up in the morning, don't you think? Oh, I'm so warm all of a sudden. I'm covered in thousands of grasshoppers. They probably wiggle. For the people in Judah, this was a bleak and hopeless and terrible time. And Joel said, you know what? As bad as this is, this is nothing compared to the coming day of the Lord. What you need to do is throw yourselves on God's mercy and embrace it. That was Joel chapter 1. Exciting, uplifting little story. Joel chapter 2, last week we talked about the coming day of the Lord, and it gave us a picture of what this was going to be like. This, this uh, more fearful event than the locust swarms. We heard about darkness that blots out all the light, even the cosmic lights like the sun, the moon, the stars, all blackened. But we also were given the, the message that an inner light is available, a light which dispels all fear, the light of God's Holy Spirit which shines out from each of His people. And Joel talked about uh, how God has promised to His people in the last days the Spirit, His Spirit that He would put within each of them. And we uh, heard how this connects to Jesus who has fulfilled that prophecy by sending the Spirit to those who follow Him. The Holy Spirit sometimes is called the forgotten God. Because we all talk about you know God the Father and Jesus the Son and then And then it's like, oh yeah, and the Holy Spirit. But they're all parts of God. It's all connected. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. So, you're marked with this Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have the hope. That's what we're told in Scripture. So Joel first says to people in a hopeless and suffering situation, don't worry, it can get worse. And then he says, throw yourself on God's mercy. And then he says, if you've thrown yourself on God's mercy, God has made sure that you're going to get through this. And then we get to chapter 3. 
And in chapter 3, what he's going to teach us is that justice will be done. Justice will be done. Joel chapter 3. Hopefully you've all got your Bibles open to Joel. We're going to start right at verse 1 from chapter 3. In those days and at that time, this is God speaking through Joel, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I'm going to stop. (laughs) I'm not going to stop every single verse, I promise. But Judah and Jerusalem are being used here to describe the collective of God's people. Joel is preaching specifically to Judah and Jerusalem, but he is also specifically preaching to God's people. This is the the remnant of God's people. This is what was there. Now, a lot of commentators, when they read through this particular prophecy, they get to this section and they interpret this literally. They say, oh, this is a message just for Judah and Jerusalem. And then once they start there, they expand it to include all of modern Israel. It's just for Judah and Jerusalem and anyone who's moved into uh, Israel as it is now. But that doesn't fit with the stuff that comes before. And I've talked a whole bunch of times over the last few years about how I kind of wish we didn't have all the chapter and verse divisions. I really like the way that it helps us find things in Scripture. But it makes us break things up where we shouldn't break things up. So people look at Joel chapter 3, and they look at Joel chapter 3, and they haven't read Joel 1 or Joel 2, and they just try to take this piece and figure out what's going on, and it leads them astray. What we have been taught throughout here is Joel is speaking to God's people. That's going to include all of God's people. That's going to include me and you. We are God's people. Isn't that good news? Well, you think it's good news. Why do you hear the message? <laughs> Joel, Joel was uh, not the most uplifting uh, of uh, prophets. Although he is, he does offer us hope in every, every dark corner. What he's going to talk about here is the restoration and vindication of God's people. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem... God's going to say, you know what? I'm going to take all of my people, all of my people, and restore their fortunes. Not just grow back the things that were eaten by locusts, but restore all of fortunes. Now, what we need to determine real quick is how do we identify God's people so we know who are God's people and who are not God's people? Because that's kind of important for the rest of this chapter. How do we know who are God's people? Hold on, let me go back about three minutes. And you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the Holy Spirit. Want to ID God's people? Who's got the Spirit? (laughs) Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean you flipped into Pentecostalism. It's okay. It's okay if you have, too. That's, that's fine. But, this is how we identify God's people. It's by their spirit in them. I uh, had a, a post from a friend of mine who's an officer uh, on her Facebook page last night um, about how she was just sitting there. She's in, not in uniform. She's not in logoed wear or anything like that. 
And uh, someone came by and asked her to pray for them. And she said, okay. And she prayed for them. And she said, why did you pick me? They said, I just could see God in you. I said, yeah, that's someone who's got the Spirit. People see me sitting and they don't come and say, pray for me. They, they tend to cross the street and walk on the other side. But I'm scary. <laughs> My wife is adorable, fortunately. So the Spirit in you is how you identify if you're part of God's people. Who has the Spirit? People who place their hope in God's grace. Now, I have, I got to this point, and I got stuck when I was working on my sermon notes, because I immediately want to run down like 35 rabbit trails about the Spirit and about grace and all that, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're trying to be on Joel's path, so I'm going to keep us to Joel's path. Now, as I interpret what we are reading, this is a prophecy about God's people being restored to a promised land and a promised wholeness. The kingdom of God. Because that's what he's talking about when he's talking about Judah and Jerusalem, saying, look, this is my kingdom. This was his physical kingdom at the time. So, And the prophecy for the future, he's talking about the larger kingdom by using the smaller kingdom as an example. This is land and wholeness. That's what he's promising in, in restoring. Land and wholeness. Land and wholeness we have not had since the beginning. Now, think about all the places God's people lived. All the land that they were given. We had Eden, Israel, and then in prophecy we hear about heaven and the kingdom of God. But however you view it, the call of this chapter to you should be the same. The only question is, are you going to choose to live out God's message in what comes next, or are you going to ignore it? Because that's the call to wholeness, is to be whole and in God's territory. Did I lose anyone yet? Okay. Yeah, I'm all the way into one verse. Okay. Joel chapter 3, verse 2. And 3. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. The Valley of Jehoshaphat. Sounds like a place, doesn't it? And it is, or I should say it will be. Jehoshaphat actually uh, means the Lord judges. So what this says is... The valley where the Lord judges. At the time this was written, there is no place on the map called that. There's a couple of places you could find after that where people tried to say, well, maybe this is where it will be. Maybe this is where it will be. But there was no place on the map called that at this time. This will be the place where all nations will gather. Who's going to gather? All nations. Not just a handful of them. All nations. All nations will gather And God will wage justice. Sounds kind of scary. Wage justice. Judgment is going to be for the way that people were treated, particularly children. In the light of news stories this week, this should start making everyone here uncomfortable. Judgment will be for the way people were treated, particularly children. They cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. 
What's in this verse and the verses to come is all couched in terms of Joel's day. But it is a prophecy for the future. So common sense tells us we have to read this as a simile, a description that uses the ideas of the time to explain something bigger which is coming. Because when we try to explain things to people, we always try to break them down into the smallest, most understandable pieces, right? I'm going to tell you how to bake cookies. First, get two sticks of butter. Then, get one cup of white sugar. Then, get one cup of brown sugar. And we could stop at each one of those and talk about, what is this? You know, if you don't know what butter is, or what a stick of butter is, well, it's, it's this. So what are two sticks? Well, it's actually it's one cup. There's one cup of each of these three ingredients. The first three ingredients I put in any time I bake cookies, by the way. We're going to have to debate that. Or just leave it alone because I'm right. I'm a cookie snob. But when we try to explain things, we have to break it down into these little pieces. Because we want people to understand what we're trying to explain, right? So we don't just say, okay, we're going to bake cookies. First, get the stuff to make cookies with. Because who you're going to be like, well, what does that mean? I, I let me get here. Uh, here's a box of eggs and a gallon of milk and a block of cheddar cheese. Not going to make cookies. Not good ones, anyway. Whenever we try to describe things, we want to break it down to small pieces and explain it using words and ideas that make sense to the people we're explaining it to. We don't use bigger words and more confusing concepts when we can avoid it. Prophecy is the same way. It has to mean something to the people that it is given to. So, when God, through Joel, is giving this prophecy, he's giving it to people in the terms that they understand, but he's talking about it as a future event. So, in the terms they understand, gives them the blocks to build with, and their imaginations blow it up to bigger. You with me? Blow it up. I'm I'm losing y'all. Prophecy is never to tell us what's going to happen. Prophecy is so that in the future, as things happen, we can say, oh my goodness, God is in control. He told us this is what was going to happen. It's not so that we can look at the prophecy and say, oh, on May 21st, 2011, the world is going to end. Which someone read Joel chapter 3, and that's the conclusion they came to. We're still here. Verse 4. This is still God speaking. Now, what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I'm going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. And Joel said, The Lord has spoken. Now, the places that are referred to in here are widely known for trafficking, or at least they were in that day and age. And take note that looting monetary wealth 
is condemned, as is the theft of the finest treasures, which uh, literally in Hebrew could be translated as the best beloved. Who are God's best beloved? It is not a golden cup. It is his people. The theft of the best beloved is what he is most upset about, people being taken and enslaved. And there were two reasons that these other nations did that. I'm going to keep it in the past for right now. Two reasons that the other nations did that to the people of, of Israel. Personal profit. Because greed and jealousy and the desire to take what others have rather than just receiving and enjoying your own blessing is something that seems to be ingrained in all of us. I want that that and that and that and that. Sure, I have everything I could ever need and want, but I want that anyway. I have a lovely van to drive. I really wish I had a monster truck. And everyone else off the road. There we go. In the days that these happened, these things happened, a lot of times one nation would try to oppress or suppress another in the uh, hopes of reducing the number of people who are different. We like people who are like us. We don't particularly care for people who are different. And so genocide, racism, anti-diversity, these would be the second reason Look, I'm going to make a few bucks by taking these people who are different and selling to those people. I don't care what they do with them. God's response, though, is, you reap what you sow. And there's an idea here in Joel chapter 3 of retributive justice. When you do X, X will be done to you. That was the only understanding that age had about justice. When you do X, you owe X. That's all they could figure out. Forgiveness wasn't on the chart back then. The only understanding of justice in that age. Now, they did assign monetary equivalents to most things. When you do X, you must pay X as a result. Think of um, um, the uh, Old Testament uh, command, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, first, that was never intended to be, you have to take an eye for an eye. That was always intended to be a limit. However, when you look in the oral traditions around that verse, you'll find uh, essentially like insurance actuary tables listed um, where they figure out the monetary value of something. If you take out an eye, you owe seven shekels. If you take a life, you owe this many coins you killed someone's slave, you owe them 30 denarii, 30 pieces of silver. Or 60 if they uh, were uh, of childbearing age. So monetary equivalents are often accepted, but the idea of justice was you do this, you pay this. Y'all with me? Sorry, I know that I'm crawling through these first couple. I'm sorry. I will... We'll speed up here. God uses their idea of justice to promise that justice will be done. Those who are harmed will reap the penalty of their actions. Right? 
those who have been harmed will see that that harm is visited on those they expect it to be. Are you worried at all about the possible penalty you might owe? I know I was trying to keep it in the past, but if you, if you start thinking about retributive justice, you need to start thinking, oh man, what did I do? What have I done in my life that someone might think I owe them for? Because I bet there's a bunch. There is in my life. Fortunately for us, Jesus has already paid our debts. In Jesus, all outstanding debts are settled. Because you did X, Jesus experienced X so that you would not have to. That's grace. Now Jesus experienced X so that you do not have to have to experience X. And you can either accept or reject that. Because God never forces anyone to do anything. You don't have to accept that He's already paid your penalty. If you really want to pay the penalty yourself, just ignore the fact that Jesus paid it for you and go pay it on your own. I, I know I'm grateful for Jesus. But there's something else about this. Who is responsible for seeing this final justice is done? God. Who's, who's making these statements that he is in charge of this retributive justice? God is. Not humans. Because in the end, only God can know what justice is. Are you paying me back? Is this how God started this? Are you paying me back for something? Do you think that you're killing my people because somehow my people owed you lives? Are you killing my people taking their stuff because they owed you treasure? Anyone read the newspaper lately? How many of the ongoing wars are because the other side thinks that the first side still owes them something? A few rocks on the ground. Hey, you killed 20 of our people last week, so we need to kill 20 of your people this week. So well, we killed your 20 people last week because the week before that you'd killed 20 of our people. Go back 6,000 years. There's always someone who feels like they just need to even the score a little bit. Only God can know what justice is. What is our job? You want to know what our job is? We had a later prophet who summed up our job really well. This is Micah 6.8. Most of you probably know this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's your job. That's your whole job. Jesus summed it up too. This is a parable he told near the end of his earthly ministry. In Matthew 25.40, he said, The king will say, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Go do for the least. That's what he's saying. Go do for the least. Specifically, go a couple verses before that, Matthew 25.35 and 36, he said, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes. You clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. He laid it out. That's your responsibility. Care for people. Look for justice. Act in mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Care for people. In Joel verse 9... 
continuing on, he says, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Go ahead, nations, prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations, from every side and assemble there. Come on down to the valley. We need you all here. You want to fight against what I keep telling you? Come on down. This is it. This is the call to the final battle. Everyone who wants to fight against God, come on. Come on. Calls to peace and justice are not your thing? You really want to just gird up for battle? Okay, this is your chance. War hero or coward, it's your time to shine. Come on down to the valley. Pour everything you have into preparing for war and come on down and attack. Oh, wait. One more thing. At the end of verse 11, Joel says, Now bring down your warriors, Lord. And then God says in verse 12, Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. So he's called all of them down to have their big final battle. The big fight against God. You know, that one we keep hearing about, evil and good, they're all lined up and one side's going to win and the other side's not going to win. And who knows who it could be because they're so evenly matched, right? God says to his army, swing the sickle, the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. The nations are ripe for judgment. They've assembled to fight, but they find there's no battle. There is no great struggle where evil can overcome good. There is no struggle at all to God. This is simply harvest time. Jesus told a story in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, do you want us to go pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. So let them both grow together until harvest, and at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. What you may not realize is that Jesus is telling the same story here as Joel. The harvest is all nations gathered together in a valley where the Lord is waiting to judge the harvest. Joel 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine because the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. But, I like it when God puts a but in. But, the Lord will be a refuge for his people. A stronghold for the people of Israel. Who are the people of Israel? All of us. Then you will know that I, the Lord, your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy and never again will foreigners invade her. The wheat is going to be stored in God's storehouse. That's His holy city. No weeds are going to be allowed. 
Are you understanding what Joel is saying? Verses 18 to 21. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of acacias. But Egypt will be desolate. Edom, a desert waste, because of the violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. So those who lived as a blessing will be blessed, while those who chose to live by violence will be destroyed. The innocent will be avenged. What violence was perpetrated by one shall be returned to them. Remember the promise, though. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. That's the message we see again and again all throughout Scripture. God loves you. Please turn back to him. The choice is yours. Live in violence or live in mercy. And the choice you make is always shown by your actions. Are you a weed or a stalk of wheat? There's so much good in our world. Did you know that? Hard to tell just by watching the news. So much good in our world. God created the world and when He looked at all He had created, He saw that it was very good. And sin cannot obscure all that. It just scars a part of it. It's the lie of the adversary that evil reigns in this world. It is the lie of the adversary that violence is necessary to put an end to violence. What is true is that the Lord, who is abounding in love, is a refuge for His people. What is true is that the greatest disasters our world has ever known do not equal the darkness of the day of the Lord. What is true is what Joel says in chapter 2, verse 21. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Which is who? Us. Do not be afraid, people of God. Be glad and rejoice, for surely the Lord has done great things. That's what we need to remember. And we need to remember that we are all God's people if we will allow ourselves to be. Allow it. Please, allow it. When he began his ministry on earth, Jesus said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe the good news. If you have never formally acknowledged God's call for you to become part of his kingdom, do that. Do it now. Do it at your table. Do it up here at the altar. Do that. Somehow, acknowledge to God that you want to be part of His kingdom. And if you are not living in the way that we hear you are to live, in justice, humbly with your God, loving mercy, change that. God will help you. It's actually not that hard. Sometimes it takes a while to kind of get the hang of it. But it's really not that hard. If you need an example of someone who does it really well, 
Um, there's a book. Uh, well, there's actually there's four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a guy in these books. He's a first century rabbi. His name was Jesus. He did it all really well. Just pay attention to his parts. Don't read about all those other people. Because they're like us. Well, you can read about them later. But read about the Jesus part first because you've got to know what to shoot for. And then you can read about all the others and realize that even his closest followers struggled. We all struggle. But we can do it. Be a part of God's kingdom. Now is the time. I'm going to close this with prayer. Father, thank you for the locust in our lives. I don't just mean the clicky ones. Thank you for the things that happen in our world which call us to seek you. I don't know if you're up there commanding every locust storm and earthquake and volcano, or if there's just things in creation that are, are going to happen, and we haven't learned how to avoid them. But Lord, I do know that in every circumstance, whatever our difficulty, you are there with us. I know that you are constantly calling us to love justice, and love mercy, and to walk humbly alongside with you. And to bring this world out of the state that it's in and into your kingdom the way that you had originally intended. Bring us all back to Eden, Lord. I don't necessarily mean a garden where we run around eating fruit off trees where we haven't invented pants or anything like that, but Lord, bring us back to that state. Restore us to that condition where we are your people on your land, living lives to the plan that you had for us so that we can achieve the things that you expected us to achieve, the things that you intended for us to do. Help us to reach the potential that you have for each and every one of us. And thank you, Lord, that you care enough about us not to just wipe us out when we screw up because we all have those moments. Thank you that the kingdom of God has come near. Help us each to repent, turn back, and believe the good news. Pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Go with God. I'm sorry I've kept you here an extra 15 minutes today. Well, actually, I'm not. You're lucky I didn't keep you here longer. When the Apostle Paul was preaching, there was that one time in particular, and I'm sure it was more than once, that he preached so long into the, uh, the hours of the night that there was this poor kid who went and sat in a window to try to stay awake. And after an hour or two, that didn't do it, and he fell out, and he fell three stories to his death. And Paul had to run out and resurrect him. <laughs> run out and restore his life, bring him back from dead. And then brought him upstairs and preached for the rest of the night. 